6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Misser completes his session entitled, The Major Prophets. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold, the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes, was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. These precious stones are classic ways of reflecting colored light. And we find that, in the, obviously, in the breastplate of the high priest. We find it in the New Jerusalem in Revelation. It's, it's an idiom that uh, deserves a lot of attention, but uh, uh, we're really uh, indulging in conjectures that go any further than that. But the other phrase in here, the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes, those are musical terms. It's from this phrase that we understand that his music capability was unparalleled. And there's speculation on some that he probably did the worship in, the, in heaven until he got overly ambitious and got carried away with his own plans. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy days, from the day that thou wast created, comma, thou wast perfect from the day thou wast, no, he, now he's obviously a super being. It's obvious though that he's a created being. Question, who created him? Jesus Christ. Colossians tells us that all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything, anything made that was made. And by Him are all things held together. You often hear between Christ and Satan as a phrase or something. That's misleading. They're not equals. Not by a long shot. Satan is a created being. He's not, and so let's not confuse that point. Then we have the saddest words Saddest word in the entire scripture. Thou was perfect in thy days from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. An interesting scrapbook to put together would be make a list of all the untils in the Bible. They usually represent a milestone of some kind, profound milestones. You can make you could make quite a, a doctrinal dissertation just highlighting the main untils in the scripture. And this is one of them. He's the anointed cherub that covereth. He was in charge. Until iniquity was found in thee. Then it goes on, by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled, the merchandise being like traffic, multitude of thy traffic, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. 
I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. And Isaiah is going to pick up on this theme, give us a little more amplification than that. But continuing with Ezekiel, Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude. Thy sanctuaries. See, he apparently led worship. Thou hast defied, defiled thy th sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Let's shift to Isaiah. There's a similar passage in Isaiah 14. See, remember, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. See, it's multiple of seven. But in Isaiah, he is taking after the king of Babylon. Ezekiel was tired, here's Babylon. But again, the same thing. The language goes, pierces beyond the, the literal king and is talking about the power that's behind him. And Isaiah says in verse 12 and following, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which is weak in the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High." The five I wills. This is why God hates pride. Because it was the pride in Satan that led to the beginning of sin. That's why leaven is a symbol of pride, because it corrupts by puffing up. Isaiah continues, Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. When you see the word hell uh, in the English, you have to realize there's several choices it could be referring to. If it's in the Old Testament, it's typically talking about Sheol, Sheol which is not the grave. The grave is for the body. The Sheol is the is the domain of the spirits. Sheol can't be owned. There's a single Sheol. There's lots of graves, only one Sheol. It's a different, it's, it's similar but different concept. The grave speaks to the physical, the Sheol, the spiritual, the, the, the soul and the spirit are in Sheol. In the New Testament, the term would be Hades, roughly equivalent, unless he's talking about the ultimate place, which is Gehenna, because even Sheol and Hades will be thrown into Gehenna at the end. We'll see when we get there. Seeing of Satan, yet thou shalt be brought down to show to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? Wow. See, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, Then shall they say also them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, in the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. See, the ultimate punishment that we always talk about in hell in the common vernacular was made for Satan and his angels. And no one will be in hell because of their sin. 
they will be in hell for having rejected the provision God has made for their sin. There's a difference. Because Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross if you'll but accept it. Well, Ezekiel also talks about the restoration of Israel in several terms. His passage of the dry bones in Ezekiel 37 is a classic, of course. It's a, it's a vision of the restoration of Israel. They're brought back to life in the flesh, and then later breathed with the Spirit. Many people say, gee, they're in, they're in the land, but they're not in belief. No kidding. But they can't be back, they can't get the Spirit until they're back in the land. So the, step one taking, is taking place. They're in the land. And the good news is there's a, a, a groundswell rising of Jewish people who are believers in the Messiah. That's exciting. In Isaiah 11, 11, we didn't pick this up when I was there. I want to leave it for here. The, in chapter 11, verse 11, there's a passage in Isaiah that says, The Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people. And it goes on from all over the world. The Lord set His hand on them to bring them back from Babylon. That was the first time. When He sets His hand the second time, that's all she wrote. You and I have been watching that since the last part of the 19th century into the 20th. And the middle of the 20th century, on May 14th of 1948, David Ben-Gurion, citing Ezekiel as his authority, named the new Jewish homeland Israel. So God has begun a work. And what He starts, He finishes. It's going to be painful, but it's coming. And of course, this is fulfilled, this part of it at least, in the first half of the 20th century. The second time. Why? is Israel to be restored. Ezekiel 36, verse 22, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Get this, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy namesake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. What God is saying through Ezekiel 36 to Israel, the good news is you're going to be restored, but not because you deserve it, Every place you went, you blew it. But my name is on the deal, so my honor is at stake. So I'm doing this for my sake, not yours. That's what he's saying. I do not this for your sake, but for my holy namesake, which ye have profaned among the heathen whither ye went. See, that's why I think the third commandment is so serious. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It has nothing to do with vocabulary, nothing to do about swearing. It has to do with ambassadorship. If you're going to take the name of the Lord upon your life, you better represent Him fairly, accurately. He's very jealous of that. Moving on. He continues. I will sanctify my great name which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land." That's what we're watching. That's chapter 36 and 37. In chapter 40 on, we have the Millennium, the Millennial Temple. There's a highly detailed description. It's not simply symbolic. All nations are going to worship there, by the way. 
offerings and sacrifices are going to be resumed. People are shocked. What do you mean? I thought Christ died once and for all. He did. But Christ's death is what saved people, not the blood of bulls and goats in the past, the author of Hebrews emphasizes. So the offerings in the future are no different than the offerings in the past. They're both memorials. The ones in advance are prophetic of what's coming. These are going to be commemorate what happened. But they will be resumed. And by the way, something will disturb a lot of people who are uh, hung up on Saturday-Sunday issues. The Millennial Temple is only open on Saturday and on the new moons. What happened to Sunday? Well, that's fine now. We have liberty in Christ, and He's the fulfillment of our Sabbath, so I'm not going to get into a law trip here. But it's interesting to discover that God ordained the Sabbath day in Genesis. And it's rather disturbing to read Isaiah 56 and other passages where clearly He uses that as a measure of people who are trying to please Him. Do they profane the Sabbath, or do they honor it? Not keeping the law, that's a whole other issue. But I'll leave that with you to think about. Anyone that thinks that's a simple issue hasn't studied it. But there is an event that occurs after the restoration of Israel, which is going on, and before the millennium. And that's chapters 38 and 39. Gog and Magog, strange invasion. It's famous for two reasons. First of all, it's the occasion in which God Himself intervenes to quell an ill-fated invasion of Israel by Magog and his allies. A powerful guy by the name of Magog arms and leads a group of allies in an invasion of Israel that God intervenes in. The allies are listed in Ezekiel 38. Persia, Cush, Put, which is north and dark Africa. Libya, Gomer, Togarma, Meshech, and Tubal. Meshech and Tubal being principal cities in Anatolia, or Turkey. The other thing, the reason this passage is so well known among Bible scholars is the passage appears to anticipate the use of nuclear weapons. That's a pretty absurd thing. Where do I get that? Well, I'll show you. First of all, let's figure out who Magog is. Hesiod was a Greek didactic poet which wrote in the 8th century BC. He wrote before even Ezekiel did, and he identifies the descendants of Magog as the Scythians by their Greek name. Herodotus, the father of history, wrote in the 5th century. And he uh, uh, also calls them the Scythians. They terrorized the southern steppes of Russia from the 10th century BC to the 3rd century BC, all the way from the Ukraine to China. The Great Wall of China was built to keep them out, or an attempt to, anyway. Philo and Josephus calls the Great Wall of China the ramparts of Gog and Magog. Soviet archaeologists who are, uh, have, have uh, done all kinds of discoveries of the Kurgans, that are the graves of the Scythians, and they know everything what they ate because they, they're, they've been frozen for 2,500 years. So they're going to analyze the bodies to find out what's in the digestive. There's still material in the digestive tract that can be analyzed. They know a great deal about their lifestyle because they are the forebears to the true Russians. In any case, they come from the uttermost parts of the north. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, the invasion comes from where? The uttermost parts of the north. What's uttermost north of Israel? Doesn't take a genius to see that. It's Russia. And what happens is, Magog lines up these tribes to invade Israel, but God intervenes. Won't let it, won't let it happen. The leftover weapons, Ezekiel tells us, will provide all the energy needs for Israel for seven years. 
that tells me that it happens before the 70th week of Daniel, because after that, we, you don't need the energy. Professionals are hired to clear the battlefield. They wait seven months before entering, and then they just clear it for seven months, according to Ezekiel 39. They bury the dead east of the Dead Sea. Read that downwind. And furthermore, if a traveler finds something the professionals have missed, he doesn't touch it. He marks the location, lets the professionals deal with it. Anybody that's been briefed on nuclear, biological, chemical warfare knows the drill. It's very contemporary. This, is, this language in Ezekiel is written 2,550 years ago. It sounds like a DOD publication of the last few years. Well, we talked about the seventh week of Daniel, which of course is in, defined by a covenant being enforced by a world leader. In the middle of that seven-year period, there's an abomination of desolation. We've talked about that already. And Jesus himself, quoting Daniel 12, labels the period between the abomination and desolation to the end of that week as the Great Tribulation. Jeremiah in chapter 30, verse 7, calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, because the focus, of course, is Israel. Now the and then, of course, we know because the abomination of desolation is desecrating a temple, we know that the, by then the temple will have been rebuilt. We don't know when it's going to start, but we know it's standing by then, because that, that's the, the focus of this issue. The 70th week climaxes with the Battle of Armageddon, which is in turn interrupted by the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom, the millennium. The question is, where does Magog fit in, the Magog invasion? Many scholars, good scholars, place it as part of the Armageddon scenario. Hal Lindsey, uh, to this day, still believes that's the correct uh, understanding. And he may prove to be correct. He's certainly a, a, a major uh, a factor in, in our perceptions here. On the other hand, there are a number of us that happen to believe, for a number of technical reasons, that the Magog invasion is not connected with Armageddon. It occurs prior to the 70th week of Daniel. And uh, we have our reasons. That's not important, because I'm not here to really you know, attack that one or the other, except to make this point. Uh, the placement of that has some ambiguities, but something that we all agree on, all conservative scholars agree on, is that it occurs after the rapture of the church. So if the Magog invasion appears to be getting positioned on our horizon, that's exciting. It's the way I usually express it. If, if you see the stores decorating for Christmas, you know that Thanksgiving's not far away. There is a disturbing hint in Isaiah 39 that I can't resist sharing with you. The more you know about the details of the text in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and the more you know about the current geopolitical horizon, the more it seems that it's getting in position. However, in verse 6, God says, I will send a fire upon Magog. He's talked about that already. Hailstones of fire falling on the field forces. And among them that dwell carelessly in the Ilya, and they shall know that I am the Lord. The word isles or coastlands is ambiguous. There are some that worry what may be hinted at here is that it may be United States missiles that are used to wipe out, to, to, to quell this invasion of Israel, and it, it precipitates a hit in, in return. That the fire on Magog may also fall upon them who dwell carelessly in the remote coastlands. Some people suspect that this might be the way that God chooses to finally bring judgment upon America. We'll talk about that when we get to the Minor Prophets, because they have much to say about that.
So in our subsequent sessions, we're going to talk about the 12 minor prophets in hour 12, and then we're into the New Testament. We'll talk about the Messianic thread and how sure can we be of these things as our bridge. I want to talk a little bit about the Old Testament texts. See, the original Hebrew, sometimes called the Vorlaga, was pulled together in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Septuagint translation is the translation of the Old Testament that occurred three centuries before Christ's ministry. About, started about 285 B.C. to 270. Seventy-two scholars in Alexandria were commissioned to do this. Took them 15 years. And the primary quotes in the New Testament of the Old Testament come from the Greek. There is a Council of Yamnia uh, that uh, in 90 A.D. where they meet, and they're upset because their Greek Bible has become the Christian's Bible. And so they lay the groundwork for what eventually becomes the Masoretic text. The Hebrew language is characterized by vividness, conciseness, simplicity, and it, but it also makes it difficult to translate fully. It takes brought twice as many English words to translate Hebrew. And, but it has a root structure. It's formed from three-letter roots uh, with forms developed by a change of vowels or by adding suffixes or prefixes. But all, it's all based on three-letter roots. The root consonants give Hebrew a semantic backbone and stability not characteristic of Western languages. And verb usage is not characterized by precise definition of tenses. It's very context-dependent. Therefore, it seems designed to allow puns and word games. That's why we see all kinds of exploitations of those features in the biblical text. Let's talk about Greek as the other primary language. It's just the opposite. It's very beautiful. It's rich. It's harmonious. And it's a fitting tool for vigorous thought and religious devotions. But it's also incredibly precise. It's characterized by strength and vigor, the language of argument, it has a vocabulary and style that could penetrate and clarify phenomenon rather than simply describe. So it's far more a perceptive language. It's the most precise form of expression of any language in existence, the Greek. Let's give you an example. The Greek verbs have to fit five aspects, tense, mood, voice, person, and number. A Greek verb will convey far more than just its definition in a lexicon. It'll tell you who's performing the action, whether just one or more uh, than one is doing it, when it is done, whether it is a single event or a process, whether it is an actual happening, a command, or just something wished for, whether it's a subject or verb is active or a passive precipitant, or both. We have passive voice and active voice in English. They have optative. It can be both. A single Greek word may thus require a phrase or a sentence or, a more, uh, or more in another language. Just the Greek verb requires a sentence to get across what it's commanding. So and there was a classic Attic Greek, which was subtle and very, but very expressive. And that characterized the culture at its peak, of course, but it's often untranslatable. After his conquest, Alexander the Great encouraged the spread of Greek uh, culture, and in, in regional dialects were uh, replaced by Hellenistic or common or Koine Greek. And that's the Greek that we're dealing with here. It's simpler, less elegant, but it retains much of the original strength, beauty, and clarity, and, and uh, its rhetorical power. Well, the Septuagint manuscripts, there's a number of them. I won't take you through all of these in detail, except that we have plenty of the Septuagint manuscripts. Unseals means simply that they're all capital letters. Uh, the vellum unseals came out of Alexandria, and we now have discovered that many of them were modified by the Gnostics. 
in the in the third and fourth fifth centuries. The uh, and I won't go through all of those. That's a whole other uh, discussion. We have a briefing pack on how we got our Bible that will go into this for you if you're interested in that. But the Council of Yomni is worth understanding. 90 A.D. they rejected the Septuagint because it became the Christian's Bible. And so they want to return to the Hebrew versions upon which it's based, the Verlaga, if they could. They produced a unified text of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and tried to see that divergent texts uh, were destroyed. And that led eventually to the what now we call the Masoretic text, and that's the English. Your English translation came from primarily from Masoretic. The Masoretes were a, a, a group of very, very strict scribes from the 500 A.D. to about 950 A.D. They're the ones that developed a form of vowels. See, Old Hebrew didn't have vowels. You, inf- you inferred the vowels. Well, they put little marks above and below the letters to, imp- to imply the proper vowels. And the oldest of this, the oldest one of these, is 895 A.D. Only for only part of it. There's still parts of it that are missing. But um, anyway, the uh, I won't go through all the other texts except to say that we have uh, uh, good copies of these, uh, and they're, they're ample from 1000 A.D. on. The Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, there were 11 caves in Wadi Qumran, 600 manuscripts, and 60,000 fragments, many are still being studied. 85% were leather, only 15% were papyrus, more durable. And in Cave 4, they had uh, 40,000 fragments of 400 manuscripts, 100 of which were biblical. Every book has been found except Esther, parts of it at least. And the important thing is to understand that the Septuagint is well before the New Testament period. That's why it's so valuable to us as we study prophecy, because there's no question about the existence and, the, and, and what, because the Septuagint is three centuries earlier, and it is in Greek, very precise. No excuse for ambiguities. The central theme of the Old Testament is that it's the account of a nation. The New Testament is the account of a man. The Creator became a man. His appearance is the central event of all history. He died to purchase us, and He is alive now. And our most exalted privilege is to know Him, and that's what the Bible is all about. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.